Ya na 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 Shalom, shalom, friends. It's great to see you. We are we are on a on a great path today for an unpredictable journey through someone we wouldn't expect to be exploring today. Um, but that's the fun of this: is that no, uh, what's the phrase? No rock goes un uncovered. That's not that's not right. Somebody help me out. No leaf. There's something about a leaf, a rock. Somebody. Un, 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 <laughs> no rock goes uncovered. <laughs> no rock goes uncovered. It was right. Okay. <laughs> no rock goes uncovered. Why would a rock be covered? Okay. All right. Somebody will explain to this, this to me later. The great mysteries of life. Why we're covering rocks these days. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, Daniel Dennett. Gary, you going to say something? No rock yeah. goes unturned. You know, you oh, unturned. Underneath the rock. No rock goes unturned. Why are you turning a rock? If you don't turn it over, you don't know what's underneath it. Yeah, but what what are we looking for? What's under the rock? Yeah, is, I didn't make I, I didn't make up the saying. Okay, all right. So okay, so okay, so no no stone, no stone is going un, uh, unturned. Um, we in this program, even though that that phrase makes no sense to me, we're going to use that today. Uh, <laughs> all right, friends. Daniel Dennett. Okay, let's start with a poll question. Let's start with a little question here to get our uh, our uh, th thinking flowing. On subjective experience, option one, being unable to prove my subjective experiences makes them less real than hard facts. Option two, being unable to prove my subjective experiences doesn't invalidate them in any way. Okay? So on our subjective experiences, these things that we feel that we think are uniquely our feelings that other people can't access. Option one, being unable to prove my subjective experiences makes them less real than hard facts, whatever reality is. Or being unable to prove my subjective, subjective experiences doesn't invalidate them in any way. Okay, so think about that. Let's say somebody uh, says, I feel Putin is a great man. Putin is just a mensch. He's a great guy, Putin. Vladimir Putin. Do we say that's reality? Because, hey, who am I to invalidate your feelings? Then again, someone else says, I feel sad. I feel sad. Is that is that real that they're sad or is that not a fact? That's just a feeling. Okay, let's see. Let's see our uh, results here. Okay, 14% uh, say that uh, being unable to prove my subjective experiences makes them less real than hard facts. 86% overwhelming. Um, this is not a Pew Research study. It's not the most academic of uh, of research studies we have here. Uh, <laughs> but amidst our group, 
we see 86% feel that um, that it's not invalidated. Our subjective experiences are real. You remember in hospitals when the doctor would determine how much pain medicine you need needed because the doctor knew your pain level, and then they moved to the subjective chart. Tell us on a one to 10, right? We're going to medicate your pain. Medicate? Not, not medicate. We're going to treat your pain, whatever it is, based upon your, your subjective experience of your pain. If you tell me you're 10, I'm going to believe you're a 10, right? Obviously with some limits, with some limits. Okay, friends, fasten your seatbelts. No stern is going, no stone is going unturned today. <laughs> the 21st century saw the rise of what some call the new atheism, a movement characterized by a markedly lower tolerance for religion, especially religion that attempted to impose its values or beliefs through politics. You ever heard of that? Christian nationalism? The phrase new atheism was coined by journalist Gary Wolf in a 2006 article for Wired, where he profiled the thinkers mounting a crusade against God. Although it may seem like a counterintuitive topic for Jewish exploration, here we will be exploring one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. These four fellows here uh, that you can see on your screen are have been, have been called um, the four horsemen of new atheism. Daniel Dennett um, is our is our topic today. He's he's the first one in that walking line. Um, I assume that they're supposed to be like the Beatles, right? Crossing the road, you know, this is like the like the new Beatles or the new atheists, whatever that. So the guy in front there with his hands in the pocket, that's Daniel Dennett. The other three horsemen might be slightly more familiar to us than Dennett. Richard Dawkins, sure we've heard of him. Sam Harris, he's kind of a up and coming name and the late Christopher Hitchens. But we're, we're going to be focusing today exclusively on Dennett. Born in 1942, Daniel Dennett is an American natural philosopher with an interdisciplinary approach using evolutionary biology and cognitive psychology to understand the philosophy of the mind. He's an extremely vocal atheist and secularist. By way of definitions, atheism is generally defined as a lack of belief in God. However, many atheists do not go so far as to deny that God exists, simply that they lack belief. Nevertheless, the new atheism, as championed by Dennett and company, tends to be less tentative and assertively argues that all religions are false, right? As opposed to a pluralist that might say there's some truth in all of it. They would say all of this is just, I mean, they might not even go as far as to say lies or deceptions, but they're just simply false. Secularism is the principle of separating the state from religious institutions and beliefs. Now, that's kind of an interesting definition of secularism. You might call me secular in that regard, because as a religious person, I believe religion should be separate from the state. Now, Abraham Joshua Heschel said it best. We should separate religion from state, but never separate um, religion from the human condition. That is to say, whatever is the best we can learn from religious thought, that should be a part of, you know, our seeking and our striving and our learning. But do we want a Catholic definition of, of when life begins to be the law of the land on abortion? Do we want a Muslim interpretation of Quran to be the Saudi Arabia law on LGBT issues? Do we want the Jewish law to be what governs Israel, you know, warfare, right? Do we want Christian states, you know, to, um, you know, to impose, impose, you know, theology 
upon the state. And I am, an, I, I am, and I, I welcome people who disagree. I am in this regard a secularist. That is to say, the state should be a secular entity that neither harms religion nor is guided by religion. Religion is a separate entity that ought to be separate from our system of rights and obligations as constructed by the state. Anyways, that's just me, but I'll be I'll be interested to hear your view. Dennett's atheism and secularism are far more than merely personal beliefs. As of 2017, he was a member of the Secular Coalition for America Advisory Board and a member of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, as well as an outspoken supporter of the Brights Movement, which asserts that all public policies should be based on science alone. You might say science becomes a religion, but... but that's another conversation. One of Dennett's most famously held positions is that religion is simply the result of evolutionary biology, meaning it is the product of our evolutionary needs and not evidence of God. Evolutionary biology largely refers to the study of the evolutionary processes, for example, natural selection, that resulted in diversity of life on Earth. It attempts to evaluate human physiology and behavior by exploring how they might have assisted human beings, how they might have assisted human beings surviving over the course of millennia. Of particular interest for us will be his views on the mind and free will. In philosophy, the question of free will refers to a millennia-long discourse over whether humans have the ability to act freely and what the moral implications of that freedom or lack of it might be. Free will is generally seen as opposed to determinism, which asserts that all events, including human decision, decisions, are inevitable. We are predictable animals. In religious terms, we might call this fate. As you might expect, Dennett believes that morality, like religion, is just another product of human humanity's evolutionary needs. However, he's not a relativist and is critical of postmodernism and their overall skepticism towards truth, right? You might have said, oh, once you say there's no God, morality is just a human construction based on our own needs rather than some higher spiritual consciousness, that you're just a relativist, anything goes. But he opposes that. Here's what he says over here. Postmodernism, the school of thought that proclaimed, and this is good because um, many of our upcoming thinkers, in addition to Derrida last week, are in the postmodern camp. So it's a good contrast here. And if you recall, Chomsky, Chomsky was also a vocal um, opponent of uh, postmodernism. And when we dealt with Foucault, we talked about how Chomsky, opposed to postmodernism, um, was very uh, debate public, who publicly debated Foucault, who was a postmodernist, even though he rejected that title. Anyways, Dennett says, postmodernism, the school of thought that proclaimed there are no truths, only interpretations, has largely played itself out in absurdity. But it has left behind a generation of academics in the humanities, disabled by their distrust of the very idea of truth and their disrespect for evidence, settling for conversations in which nobody is wrong and nothing can be confirmed. Dennett is not really a philosopher. Uh, well, we'll, we'll kind of get to that. But he, he's a scientist. I mean, well, he's not really a scientist either. We'll kind of get to that too. But he, he wants evidence. He wants evidence for arguments which is very different than philosophical theory. He doesn't like this postmodern camp that can so easily dismiss things. Indeed, Dennett has nothing if not respect for facts. 
at least scientific ones, viewing human nature through an evolutionary lens, he identifies as an adaptationist, an adaptationist, and believes that many, but not all of our human traits are the result of evolutionary adaptations, excuse me, adaptions. However, this is distinct from the now outmoded can-adaptationism, which argues that all, not just many, of our human traits are the result of evolutionary adaptations. In evolutionary biology, adaptation refers to the adjustments of organisms to their environment in order to improve their chances of survival. Adaptations are passed down to the next generation. This is part of natural selection. For example, the fact that today's human immune genes reflected evolution based on which genetic variations were able to survive the bubonic plague in the mid-1300s. So, for example, if you took a, an evolutionary approach to opposition to homosexuality rather than a religious one, you might say, oh, it makes sense why every, every civilization was opposed to homosexuality, right? And that's because people want to reproduce. People want to survive. And gay men, until recent technologies, and, and you know, uh, or aside from ado adoption, could not reproduce. So, of course, every society based on evolution is going to oppose homosexuality. You might say the same thing about um, abortion. If you don't think religiously that every human being is created in the image of God or every human life has infinite dignity and value, you simply want to survive and reproduce. You're going to be opposed to anything that's going to limit the numbers of your clan, right? And you're opposed to abortion simply on evolutionary terms. And, and so on. Now, we may return to the concept of free will versus determinism, a question that for Dennett is decided by the extent to which our behaviors are influenced by our genetics and their long evolutionary history or whether we have the freedom to choose for ourselves. In this debate, Dennett embraces free will. Get ready for another ism. Dennett is a proponent of compatibilism. I know I'm throwing a lot of isms out there. Compatibilism, which means he believes that free will and determinism are not actually at odds, even though for most free will thinkers, he'd be called a determinist. He thinks that, that everything is determined and that humans are free, can be jived together. They are compatible with one another. There's a pathway, he believes, in which we can be coherent and not inconsistent while embracing both. While our genetics may produce certain constraints for how we can act within those constraints, human beings can use reason to choose different outcomes. He's argued that humans alone among the animals have evolved minds that give us free will and therefore moral responsibility. Although that's a complicated word for him. If, if he really doesn't think that we're free, in ways that we think of freedom, because ultimately he thinks you need something beyond the physical to be free. If all we are is animals with brains, right? We don't have souls, then there is no freedom because everything is simply within the machine of the human, right? And to some degree predictable that every choice is informed by our DNA, by our memories, by our experiences, by our disposition, 
right? There is nothing beyond the physical. Once you deny something beyond the physical, as he does, what does it really mean to say we're free? Once you say we're not free, what makes us responsible? How can I be morally responsible for my choices if I'm not free? If it's determined that I'm going to make a certain moral choice, how can you punish me for it? That's not very just, right? Ah, so what does Dennett want to say? He says, yes, we're not as responsible as we think. We sh- and yet, why are why do we not throw the baby out with the bathwater? To use another phrase that makes no sense, like uh, unturning stones, <laughs> throw out the baby with the bath. Who's throwing out babies? My gosh! Um, so w- why um, uh, why why um, do we are we not throwing out the baby with the bathwater? <laughs> because he thinks people, even though we're not really responsible because we're determined, still want to be viewed as responsible. Because being viewed as responsible is what gives us social status. You can't get a driver's license if you're not a responsible driver. You can't get it. You can't keep your job if you're not responsible at your job and do your work, right? You can't. Um, you can't exist in the in the broader community if you're not deemed to be a morally responsible person. So even though you're not really responsible because you're determined, Dennett would say, "Don't worry, all morality is not lost." People still will need to be viewed as responsible, even if if they're not truly accountable for that responsibility. In fact, many people today, for better and worse, want to claim they're not responsible because of their trauma. I have trauma, and so I'm not responsible for my bad moral choices because I'm operating from a place of trauma. And to be sure, our courts allow that. Um, I mean, I think most relationships don't allow that. Someone's not going to be like, oh, you stole from work? That's okay because you have trauma, right? You have trauma. And so we understand why you stole, right? That's not going to cut it. But in the court of law, someone who has a whole life of trauma might be given a lesser sentence in court because they can, the lawyer can suggest that it wasn't purely free will and evil why the person did, you know, um, did what they did. But they, they beat a child because they were beaten as a child, right? And so it's slightly less worse because it wasn't just from a place of evil. It was a pl- from a place of trauma, right? And that's, agree with that or disagree with that. That's part of kind of our legal system today. Anyways, for a Jewish source that articulates a similar idea to compatibilism, although in a decidedly non-atheistic fashion, we might turn to Pirkei Avot. Everything is foreseen, yet freedom of choice is granted. Let me repeat that. Everything is foreseen, meaning God knows what will be done, yet freedom of choice is granted. That's compatibilism. Most people say, if God knows what I'm going to do, Shmuley's going to clap. Boom! Shmuley clapped. Shmuley's not free. God knew Shmuley was going to clap, right? And someone else says, no, God doesn't know what I'm going to do. I clapped. I just surprised God. God had no idea that was coming. Boom! God surprised you again, right? Compatibilism says, no, God knows what I'm going to do, but I'm still free to do it, okay? So Dennett seeks to develop a philosophy of the mind that is rooted in empirical evidence, meaning evidence gathered through scientific observation. In a way, Dennett advocates for bridging philosophy with the sciences, that empirical research shouldn't be left solely to the sciences, but rather that it has a place in the philosophical realm where we talk about the nature of life, the mind, and human experience. So let me give an example. We've talked about this example before, where 
we might want moral philosophy to be in partnership with science. Let's say based upon the violent gene, we know someone is going to be very likely to be violent. So we imprison them based on the science that we know someone's based on their on their genes is much more likely to be violent. Well, that makes sense, right? Because we want to protect society from violent people. But moral philosophy comes and says, wait a minute. Um, it's not exactly just to imprison someone who's done nothing wrong, right? And so if we took just a utilitarian view and said, this person's much more likely to be violent, let's protect society. We might say it's just based on the science of the DNA. But if we took a different more philosophical approach, we say, no, not just to imprison someone who's done nothing wrong. Much of Dennett's work concerns consciousness. As an atheist, he believes there is nothing beyond the brain, right? Everything you want to know about a human can be t- you can find out from neuroscience. He thinks we have all the scientific tools we need to measure and assess every aspect of human consciousness that exists. Don't tell me you have some subjective some, some subjective feeling that a brain scan can't tell me. Don't tell me you have some spiritual experience that's transcendental beyond what we can assess from brain activity, neural activity. It's all right there in the hard science. There is no external God, nor is there an internal soul. And if it turns out, if it turns out there is a soul, Dennett said, he believes it will be explained by science and evolution. There ain't any magic there, he told, he told uh, the New Yorker in an interview on the topic. Just stage magic, right? So if there is a soul, it's basically what we call the brain, right? And we're going to figure that out. One of his most controversial moves is to deny the existence of qualia. This goes back to what we were talking about in our poll question today. A term that philosophers use to refer to our subjective experiences of personal consciousness, such as the smell of perfume, the pain of a headache, the colors of a sunset. Qualia are at the heart of many theories of consciousness because they often describe a relationship between the outer world and inner experience. Dennett doesn't deny people experience pain or that people see colors, but he rejects the idea that qualia exist as some sort of purely subjective experience apart from reality, right? He wants to say there is simply reality that can be measured and nothing beyond that, right? There's no experience of the smell of perfume that cannot be that cannot be assessed that you experience beyond that objective reality. However, countless neuroscientists push back on his claim, and for good reason. Just because I can't see your subjective experiences, it seems a little bit absurd for me to assume you don't have them, right? In fact, one could argue that Dennett fundamentally misunderstands the basis of science and proof that as you can't reject qualia without evidence to reject, one needs evidence to prove something exists, but also one needs evidence to prove something definitively does not exist. That said, Dennett may overstate his claims, but he does have a lot to offer us in terms of bridging disciplines, and in particular, making a bridge for empirical research to enter the philosophical realm. You know, I was thinking this morning, and it's a question to ask yourself as well, how much do we care, truly care, when someone we know tells us they have a headache. So how are you? Ah, I got a headache. Do we care, right? 
we might say, oh, I really care. I really care about your headache. Like, how can I help you alleviate your headache? We might say, we don't really care because headaches are common. I just had a headache two hours ago, right? Go take some Tylenol, grow up. Like, just, you don't have to tell me about your headache. We all have little pains and aches. We don't have to tell everybody about them, right? Or maybe we think, based on Foucault, you're telling me you have a headache because it's a power move. There's something you want from me by telling me you have a headache. You want me to do something for you by telling me you have a headache. I don't believe, I don't believe in your, it, that there's not some interest involved in you telling me you have a headache. Do we care when someone shares with us their inner experience when it seems relatively minor? Ask yourself that. And next time your spouse or your friend or the like says, how you doing? I, I, I got a little headache. I got a little cold. Do we, do we actually care? Or if we pretend, or do we pretend we care? Because it's a social convention. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry about a headache. Or do we, do we care about the headache? Anyways, there's a real parallel here with the Talmud, where some halakhic positions are rooted purely in abstract legal thought, while some positions are rooted in social reality. Interestingly, there are famous instances in the Talmud where a dispute is resolved by the rabbi saying, Puk chazi me'amar davar, me'amar davar, right? Puk chazi, go out and see what the people are doing. What an interesting thing. They say, what should the Jewish view be on this issue? The answer is not abstract or interpretation of a biblical text. The answer is, go see what the people are doing. Don't tell me it's wrong if 90% of the people are doing, doing it. Right. We don't want to condemn what everybody does so much. Right. I mean, maybe on some level we want to disincentivize it, but you don't want to say something is totally immoral if everybody's doing it. So the way you know what's right or wrong is based on what the people are doing. In such a case, abstract theory means little. And the halakha is to be determined by the empirical behavior of the people. In one such case, the rabbis were unsure as to what blessing should be made after one drinks water. Should they, should they instruct that one must check and see how, how people currently act in regard to this question? Are people thanking God for water or do people just drink water, right? You might Classically, if someone has bread, they might say, ah, I'm going to bless God for my meal of bread. Thank you, God, for this meal of bread or hamotzi lechem in haaretz. But water, like water, why should I thank God for water? We need halakha that takes into account both the theoretical and the sociological. Something would be empty about Talmudic discourse if the primary lens were sociological. Yet something would also be missing if the law were completely detached from human experience. Now, interesting enough, um, I think that um, Orthodox Judaism and Reform Judaism pride themselves on kind of being in touch with the people. I think conservative movement doesn't want to be in touch with the people, right? Orthodoxy and, and reform, reform wants to adapt. Reform movement wants to adapt to be responsive to where the people are at. Oh, everybody's intermarrying, so we got we to gotta perform intermarriages, right? Um, everybody is eating bread on Pesach, so let's not be concerned with that. Let's make Passover more engaging. Orthodoxy also, in its own way, um, the, the practitioners of orthodoxy practice more or less exactly like the rabbis of orthodoxy. The conservative movement has a big divide between the people who write responsa, legal rulings, and the way the typical conservative do practices. And there's a big disconnect, and the conservative movement doesn't know what to do with that. 
right? That they write response to, hey, guess what? Now you can eat rice on Passover. And the whole conservative movement's like, whoop de doo I've been doing that since I was six years old, right? Or now they, they did something a year ago. They said, oh, now you can also drive an electric car on Shabbat, not just a gas car on Shabbat. And the conservative movement's like, who's not driving cars? You already told us decades ago we could do that, right? Now the big tension continues to be on intermarriage, where um, there, there continues to be a big divide in that movement. In any case, that whole thing, should religion and 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 the leaders of the religious um, you know, camps be removed from the masses or responsive to the masses? And to what extent? And that's a great debate that continues to happen. And of course, this happens in all religions. Um, we see Catholicism, a great debate that's going on now globally because of the different views, right? As we talked about, when the Pope was a, continues to be a little bit more lenient on uh, LGBT issues, the African Catholic churches in particular are very, very uncomfortable um, because of how um, taboo still those issues are in Africa, of course, in many societies. Okay, anyways, in a similar vein, we need both science and religion and philosophy in order to fully describe the world. Most of us probably feel in our hearts that the question of the soul, for example, can never be resolved through empirical data, right? You can't just put on a, uh, um, you know, uh, go in a, go in a scan machine. Uh, what, what, there's so many different scan machines. What do you call them? You got the uh, PET scan. You got the, what else do you have these days? Uh, help me out, guys. There's like, there's like 10 different scan machines. And there's an MRI. You got a PET scan. What else do we have? Okay. CT scan. CT scan, right? So there's, um, anyways, yeah, thank you. So anyways, do we think these scans could ever help us answer the question of the soul? Here's what Rabbi Steinzold says. Um, after many generations of observation, it's generally accepted that the soul is located in the brain among modern people. However, scientists and philosophers, as well as other thinking people, know that this sort of definition is merely convenient shorthand and not really a description. Even those who locate the soul in the heart or the brain know that these organs are pieces of flesh. They, they are at best points of contact with the soul, but do not constitute the soul itself. Right, just because I can't say my soul's in my finger or my soul's in my head or my soul's in my heart, I can't point to something do we disqualify? From what I've read, it seems to me that, as Rabbi Steindels is asserting, that there's some Im immaterial part of the self, which seems to be beyond the physical. The best academics, the stars of the scientific community, include a lot of people who that would seem to agree with Rabbi Steindels. Take, for example, the scientist Francis Collins, former um, director of the Human Genome Project, who is quite outspoken about his belief in God and recognizes there can exist things beyond human understanding. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, noted some of the limitations of science in his book on morality. There's something intrinsically dehumanizing in the scientific mindset that operates in detachment, driven by analysis, the breaking down of holes to their component parts. The focus is not on the particular, this man, that woman, this child, but on the universal. Science, per se, has no space for empathy or fellow feeling. This is not a critique of science, but it is an insistence that science is not the sum total of our understanding of humanity, right? Science cares about universals, right, uh, to some degree. And he's arguing that morality cares about individuals and their particularities. Of course, of course, science cares about that as well. So it's a little bit of an overstatement. 
but I think we understand his point. That Dennett completely rejects the value of subjective experience is a little confounding. It's interesting that he himself is not an academically trained scientist, and yet many working scientists actually embrace the mystery and humility of what is beyond our comprehension. In fact, you might say the best of scientists think we don't have it all figured out, but are humbled by how much more there is to learn and how much humans can never fully grasp. You might say they keep science in its own lane about what it can prove and disprove. Conversely, we can really understand Dennett's frustration with religious individuals who completely reject science and instead insist that religious beliefs should shape public policy, right? Uh, here we might, um, um, this might very much resonate with Dennett's saying. Many religious fundamentalists insist that God will protect us, even as scientists are telling us that it is humans who need to take direct action, right? You remember that you've heard that joke many times before of the guy whose boat is sinking, right? And, 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 and he drowns and he goes to the heavenly court and he says, God, I believed in you. I believed in you, right? Uh, right? Uh, why didn't you? Uh, why didn't you save me? Right? I, I, I'm kind of getting to. I'm kind of making the story the short version. And God says, "What do you mean I didn't save you? I sent you three lifeboats." Right? Because in the, in the, in the longer version of the story, everyone comes and says, "Come on, I'll save you on my boat." And he says, "No, God will save me. God will save me." Right? <laughs> and then he drowns. And God says, "What do you mean I sent you three lifeboats?" Right? And so sometimes, you know, God might be confounded by our reliance upon upon the on the miraculous. Just look at climate change. No one can in good faith brush off the conclusive science regarding how human actions are making the planet in inhabitable, uninhabitable. Climate change is real. I'm sure we all, um, I suspect we all agree, it may, you know, might have differences um, of around different studies and how much time is left and what's impacting what, but science is real. Our discussion on implications of Dennett's claims should not suggest otherwise. But what, I'm ex what I want to assert today, rather, is that re religion can respect science and vice versa. Rather than viewing them as in battle or intention, religion versus science, atheism versus believers, right? Evolution versus creation, right? We can view science and religion as in collaboration. I personally embrace both the science of evolution and the creation story of Genesis. You can read Bereshit as a creation story offering spiritual and moral lessons as opposed to a scientific history of the universe. It's possible to fully embrace both as true, and many thinkers have done just that. Francis Collins, the geneticist I mentioned before, has said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He's a Christian. From the world of Jewish thought, Daniel Matt, the brilliant translator of the Talmud, wrote a book called God in the Big Bang, or if that's one of your interests, it's a fascinating book, which finds points of overlap between science and spirituality, examining how physics and Jewish mysticism can mutually illuminate one another. One of the most powerful examples of a Jew who embraced religion and science is the Rambam, who, as well as being one of the great minds of Jewish thought, Maimonides, who was also a working physician who treated patients. Much of his writing bridges the gap between disciplines. In his Guide for the Perplexed, the Rambam outlines a negative theology, which essentially states that it's impossible to assert anything positive about God because of the limits of our human comprehension. Rather, we can only understand by ruling out what God is not. 
This is an almost empirical approach to theology. It's almost, it feels um, um, possible that the Rambam's pursuits as a doctor may have informed his approach to Jewish wisdom. For him, treating patients and tending to the soul was not a contradiction. And the fact, the fact that he saw them as complementary in and of itself is a kind of refutation of Dennis. That said, I don't think Jews or anyone should outright reject atheists who land in places like Dennett. Even if such thinkers overstate their claims as Dennett does, they are not threats to society. We need not view atheists as the enemy of society, presuming they have a moral framework that enables them to know right from wrong. Right? If they're the type of atheist who thinks everything goes, that's a very, they're basically a form of paganism that rejects morality at its core, right? But if they generally argue for morality, but also for a form of atheism, um, we, we ought to be tolerant. Rather, we must remember that all philosophy throughout time has had blind spots and that Dennett's emphasis on studying the mind and consciousness is worth learning from. One of the great frontiers of consciousness is, of course, AI, artificial intelligence. You might imagine that Dennett would embrace AI since he seems to view people as machines to some degree with nothing beyond the physical. However, it turns out that Dennett is actually concerned by AI. He fears we may come to misunderstand the systems of artificial intelligence and start to think that AI possesses their own intellectual power as if they were human. He warns that companies using AI to create counterfeit people are eroding the trust that makes civilization possible. These counterfeit people are the most dangerous artifacts in human history, capable of destroying not just economies, but human freedom itself. I, I, interesting, I was watching a YouTube of Dennett er, very early this morning, where he asked the question, if you could choose a babysitter, which babysitter would you choose for your child or grandchild? Right? Um, one is a robot that is not capable of mistakes. I mean, b basically almost impossible to make a mistake. If somebody knocks on the door, the robot's not going to let right, some dangerous person in the door. The other person is a responsible adult, but as all human beings are, is capable of a whole bunch of mistakes. Which one would you rather as a babysitter, right? Um, right. And I think that um, we are more trusting, uh, you know, for, for something of guarding our children with a human being who is much more capable of errors than we are of a robot, right? Um, that might be, I don't know about your relationship to self-driving cars, if you'd rather be in a self-driving car or have a driver. <laughs> but that's uh, something we could discuss. All right, moving towards a conclusion. Asking what makes human humans different from AI is a very Jewish question. One of the great interests of Torah scholars is what makes humans different from animals, from angels, from God. And now we can add to that what makes humans different from the most advanced machines. If you don't think humans have a soul and robots don't have a soul, Right? What makes us fundamentally different than something that looks like a human but is really fundamentally an a, you know um, an AI machine, right? Um, it, and what and what if it could to some degree get to a point of being responsive to feelings? For those of us that embrace the uniqueness of each person's internal experience and their soul, we may view technology and machine learning as useful, but understand that it is in no way a replacement for or superior to human capability. As we continue to explore new realms of consciousness in the expanding field of AI, 
It's clear now more than ever that science cannot dismiss the soul. We must all think carefully about how to safely and responsibly integrate AI into the society we want to live in, one that acknowledges the sanctity of each human. Dennett's ideas may not directly intersect with Jewish traditional thought, but he offers a smart springboard for further conversation to deepen our sophistication on significant theological and philosophical issues. Um, okay, friends, um, I want to open our conversation here that we just really threw a ton of ton at you around free will, around AI, around is there a soul, and if so, where is it, around atheism. Um, and I would love to to hear some things you're thinking about. Hi, Steve Chauvin. Hi, uh, good morning. This is not exactly pertaining to the last three uh, questions you asked, but Great. earlier there was the statement, God knows what we're going to do. And my question is, do we have the right to know what God is going to do? And does God actually do anything? Great. That's a great question, Steve. And I think that is very much in the spirit of Dennett, right? Um, number one, how can you prove to me at all that God does anything in the world? Um, you know, we can explain why the heart beats. We can explain how babies are born. We can explain how people die and how they're cured, right? Um, what we can't explain, it, well, I mean, beyond scientific explanations, uh, from any moral explanation, how there's a um, there's a God who allows droughts and babies to die, um, you know. And so, um, from a scientific perspective and from a religious perspective, what can we truly say God does? If we're only in a church or a synagogue of a certain ideology, it becomes taken for granted that we just say God does X, God does Y, God does Z. And maybe that's comforting or strengthening and, or fits our ideology. But if we step back, I think in the Maimonidean theology, in, in, the, in the thought of Maimonides, we need to have far more humility, as Steve is saying, around what we can truly say God is and God does. Um, in fact, that's heresy itself, according to Maimonides, to think that we can kind of create a God in our own image. So yeah, so Steve, thanks for flagging that. There are central tenets of Jewish theology. But bracking some of those, you know, traditional tenets for the moment, um, you know, in the spirit of, of the thought of Dennett, I think as modern people, we not only have the right to, but should ask some of these big questions. We, we covered a lot of ground. So any uh, tangents you want to take are also great. Hi, Matthew. You reference earlier Orthodox and Reform rabbis being of the people and not of the people. It also applies to other to politicians. Are they of the people, is the congressman have his own views or do they represent a constituency? And what does the constituency assume and want of the politician, especially in a divided democracy? The classic example is Charlie Goodell, a name that some people may remember. His son was the NFL commissioner for years, may still be. He was a relatively conservative Republican member of the House from Buffalo. When Bobby Kennedy was shot and assassinated, he became the New York State Senator and became a liberal. And the answer was, I represent my constituency. It's not Buffalo, New York anymore. It is the state of New York. So it's the same issue going back and forth with religion and politics. Do you have certain core values or do you sway with the wind? So I just toss that out there. 
Great. Okay, awesome. I'm so glad you brought this up. I think it's such an interesting question around um, do we want uh, religion and, and our religious leaders to be, and politicians we'll get to as well, beyond us, um, beyond us or a part of us? So when, when, when I vote for someone, do I want them to vote like the majority of the district? Right. If 70 percent of their district wants something, they better darn do it. That's what the district wants. Or do I want to um, vote for someone with a conscience who is going to do what they think is right, even if their district disagrees? That's a hard question. Well, and it, it, it's easier when you have a strong view yourself. When you're in the minority, you, you're, you say, oh, it's a person of conscience when they stand up for the minority. When you're in the majority, you say they better vote with the majority. Right. But it's interesting politically. But then also religiously, do we want do we want the rabbi to live like we live or to, to live to a higher standard? Right. If I have a priest, mm-hmm. priest is not going to get married. I don't want the priest to get married. They're, they're going to live differently, separately from how we live. That's part of why they're a vehicle to God for me. Right, they're intermediate intermediary, or yeah, you know, I can confess to the priest, right? But do we want the rabbi to be an intermediary, someone who's kind of separate or a part of the community? Some people want to play play pickleball with the rabbi. Others, they don't want that kind of relationship. Chip. They want them to be removed, different. So, anyways, why did we come to that? I think we came to this question partially because of the of the question of um, how much do we want what's true to be empirical how much do we want um the empirical or the sociological to you know help construct our sense of what's good do we want to look to the masses to determine what's right and good or not the if i can just make one other comment about a politician yeah i think it was george michael was his name who was the republican in new york state before roe v wade who cast the deciding vote to make abortion legal in New York before the Supreme Court allowed it. And he said, I'll never be elected again. This is not what my district wants, but it's core value to me. Mm-hmm. And he was never elected to anything again, ever. <laughs> okay, but he at least acknowledged it. And, you know, right now we have politicians who sway with the wind and very few have what I call moral centers or moral characters. Yeah, okay, very, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That part of the way our political system is set up, and that's one of the reasons why some argue that the, that judges should not have term limits. Many today are proposing term limits for senators and for judges, whatever the case is, but was, we don't want them to be influenced by elections. Let judges have their position for life and do what's right and not be influenced. Well, that may or might not be good, but one of the broken parts of our political system is if you're constantly campaigning for your job, Right. How can you possibly do what you think is right as opposed to what's going to keep you in your job? Right. No, so that, not not even do what is right. How can you even do your job? Do if your you job. Spend your... Right. Forget even. Yeah. Forget, forget even just do what's right. Just do your job if you're constantly campaigning. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Matthew. Very interesting. OK, um, Ed, I think I saw you wanted to jump in. Right. I guess when we were talking about free will, I, I had this thought about this uh, dualistic choice. Um, we've got to either be free will or fate. And it sounded to me like Dennett kind of recognized that there were things in between uh, those two, if you will, extremes. And so there could be times when both 
are existing. And I heard at least from, well, I thought anyway, from reading um, Viktor Frankl that in the camps, he basically said that whatever moral framework that you had before is now thrown out. The circumstances have changed, mm -hmm. if you will, technology. If you look at the medical profession in defining when, when, when is death and when is life starting and ending, um, that you end up having to make different decisions. You might consider whether this is free will or, you know, is this fate, but you end up still taking the responsibility. Of, of making that decision as though it were free will. And so it brings up the thought that, well, maybe that was what was intended, was we were supposed to have this sort of sense of free will when maybe in fact it, it was fate mm. that said, okay, I'm gonna give you this, what you might call free will, mm. and I'll see what you're gonna do with it. But in yeah. fact, I was giving you this because I meant to. That is God. <laughs> you know, I'm giving you this fate, right. um, but it's going to make you look like you're going to take the responsibility, which might be the case. But you end up though finding that well, and and in Frankel's case, he said that you could you could see the the moral framework fall apart because you weren't going to help your fellow prisoner, mm. when it meant that you were going to get beat and, and tortured because you helped your fellow uh, prisoner. So you see people just walking by and not paying any attention. Um, on the other hand, he saw a few that would do this kind of in secret and help out their fellow. And so it, it just seemed to me that there were instances where you could say, okay, I'm going to take the responsibility. Now, I, you know, I can blame it on fate or free will, but that doesn't really make any difference. It's the responsibility that you're taking for acting that way, I guess, or mm -hmm. reacting that way. So I kind of, I think I kind of agree with Dennett on that whole issue that, well, you know, you got these extremes, but you know, there might be times when you're just going to act responsibly mm -hmm. and not worry about, oh, well, before I thought that, you know, I should do this morally correct or I can blame it on God or, you know, it, it, it's a fate. I mean, you know, we're going to have an earthquake and I'm going to get killed in it or whatever the case may be. Anyway, I... I thought that that whole, again, that whole dualistic, you got to make a choice of either or, is the distraction from the Great. whole issue of taking responsibility. Okay, very interesting. Good. So in the um, thank you, Ed. And in the interest of in inviting more voices in, I I'm not going to say much in response to what you said, is just that thank you. And I do think that getting our own personal clarity on how much we think the world can be changed or, or, or cannot how much we think our fates can be changed or not, how free we think we are or not, or whether we take a compatibilist approach that kind of mixes it together, as, as that is sharing in Dennett's, in Dennett's uh, uh, line of thought as well. I think it's really important to get some clarity on those issues because I think a lot of our life ideology on criminal justice, 
on parenting, on education, on how societies operate, can be informed by our view of, of freedom um, and our view of outside forces uh, in, uh, in relationship to that freedom. So thank you. Okay, Cheryl, Cheryl, you want to jump in, Cheryl? Um, yes, I, I go. Let's go back to the uh, creation story, which you mentioned. Um, uh, so God said, "Don't eat of this tree, the fruit of this tree." But so God said it. But then they had the Eve had the free will to choose whether mm. to do it or not. So if there, if we have free will, then why was she punished for? going against God. So, you know, that, that, that was just one dilemma I, I thought about. Um, the other comes way, way into the current times and AI that you spoke about. Um, AI is dangerous uh, because of lack of conscience and uh, you have to sometimes make a choice. I mean, I see the, I haven't tried it yet, but I see the Waymos driving around, you know, and you want the Waymos driving around. I'm a little leery of that. I'm, a, you know, and also let's just go to something much more um, pertinent to us right now. And that's like armchair warfare and drones and targeting uh, with drones and things like that. I mean, there's, you have to step back. The AI might be doing, the drones might be doing the work, but the AI has to come, the, the, um, the conscience has to come from the person who's actually operating it. And so does that, that's the free will versus, you know, it's science, religion, free will, all wrapped up into one package. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, that's kind of what I got out of today is that it's complicated. Right. So complicated. And I hope we can call, all keep reading about these issues, the issues of free will and determinism, the issues of AI, because I think the ethics are really interesting. We're going to be asked as voters, as citizens, to weigh in on some levels on some of these pressing issues. We already have warfare by drones. I mean, we know about, uh, you know, these kinds of things. Um, you know, then there's um, there's the obvious benefits in terms of medical technologies that are used now for various procedures. Um, but then there are things that are going to have major implications for how society looks in the future. Who gets to hold a job? Um, and whether certain jobs will continue to exist, who's making the moral decisions on certain fronts. But just to conclude with Cheryl's first point, the eighth Hadat Tovarah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve eat from, implies that they had no free will around moral choices before they ate. Why? Because they eat from the tree that gives birth to the consciousness of a knowledge of good and evil. Um, so how can they be punished at all? Or if they weren't free, they had no knowledge of good and evil whatsoever, right? And you might say, oh, they're punished because they didn't follow the command, right? Yeah, everybody understands the command, whether you know morality or not, right? The other thing you might say is that it wasn't a punishment at all. It was the inevitability of what human society was going to look like to not live in the Garden of Eden, to not live in, na in naivete. To not live in a world of working and of building in a in a more complicated world. So those that's a fascinating issues around um, what human beings are and whether or not we're responsible for those choices. Um, Adam says it's not my fault. She gave it to me. He says it's not my fault. Right? The snake gave it to me. Right? Nobody thinks that they're responsible. And Dennett argues you may still be responsible even if you're not free. 
And um, that's something worth thinking about. All right, friends, we're going to jump back um, a few a hundred years or more to Sigmund Freud next week because Freud, um, uh, we, I, we skipped over him by accident and we can't skip Freud. So we'll go to Freud next week. So you can all lay on your couch next week. Uh, you can lay on your couch um, when we discuss psychoanalysis. Uh, <laughs> and I will and I will be your analyst next week. But have a great day.